0: forces and explosions it's episode 183 of the down and nerdy podcast i'm james Witham, and it seems like things just keep getting bigger and bigger with our fall tv coverage for 2017 that's right the cast of arrow and the cast of the flash are going to join us this week to talk about the big premieres that are going to be coming up for dc tv on the cw this coming week so excited for as a matter of fact this show is so full we've got to get right to it up next what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hey, this is Kobe Bell from the Gifted on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Pull out your long box, your tablet, or your laptop, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And this is a story that ever since it was announced, and I know I've said this before a couple times, but seriously, this one just jumped right out at me. I said, I can't wait to read this story, and it is Batman the White Knight... Number one of seven, which is written, and the art is also done by Sean Gordon Murphy. Matt Hollingsworth does the colors and the cover colors. Todd Klein does the letters. Now, remember when this was announced, it was basically a story where Joker's the hero and Batman is the villain. So in a limited series like this, something that's out of continuity, you kind of feel like it's going to be completely turned on its ear from the beginning, right? Well, this is kind of a minor spoiler. I know you don't usually do spoilers here, but this is kind of a minor spoiler, and I feel like it's one that has to be said before I can review this book, is that this book actually starts out like a fairly normal Batman story. Batman's still Batman, Joker's still the Joker, and you see Batman chasing the Joker in the beginning of the story. Well, once you get, you know, it's one of those things where it starts off closer to the end, and then you get the one-year-ago-today kind of thing. So once we get to that point, it is Batman chasing the Joker and you've got Batgirl there, and you've got Nightwing there, and it seems fairly innocent. And in this book, and I I promise to try not to spoil anything else, in the rest of this book, we get this, you've read Batman stories in the past, like The Dark Knight Returns, and there's a classic showdown. Or even in The Killing Joke, there's a classic showdown, right? What we get in this book, and I'll I'll even say one of the Scott Snyder books in the run, uh, Endgame maybe, where there was a classic showdown as well. There is a classic showdown in this book that might be right up there with one of the most epic Batman classic showdowns of all time between Batman and the Joker. And the end result of this is where the book takes its turn. And this is actually kind of in the solicitations and in the description of the book. So this isn't a spoiler because it comes right from the DC Comics website. Joker is cured now. That's the, that's the crazy part about this book is that Joker becomes cured, he's now better, he's not really the Joker anymore, and he's got that Jack Napier persona now. Now, in in all of this, we also see societal impacts of what's been happening between Batman and the Joker, which again, I I will not spoil what actually went down between the Batman and the Joker. You see the societal impacts of what happens. And it's almost like a modern day interpretation of, okay, if this were to happen in our society now, what would the reaction be like? Or what do we think the reaction would be like? And that's what I love that Sean Gordon Murphy's done here is he's given us that ability to bring this into the real world, which, you know, we t- we tend to try to do with comics, right? We try and compare it to what's going on in the real world, or that's what creators will do sometimes. And we see Bruce Wayne. There's a point in this book where you see him kind of, you see a crack in the armor and there's a major reason for that. And you're trying to understand, okay, what's going on? And then you find out exactly what's going on. And every, every human being has a breaking point, right? And, and you find certain things about even fictional characters, you know, is their breaking point. And we see that in this book for Bruce Wayne, but even given that, what we end up with at the end of this book is so fascinating to me and where this is going. And it wasn't just a simple story where you could say, okay, Batman's the bad guy, Joker's the good guy, go, which would have been interesting enough. But no, Sean Gordon Murphy and everybody involved in this book took it to another level. And I've always loved his art and other books that he's done, but the writing by Sean Murphy here is just absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's like this real passion here for these characters. I mean, how can you not have a passion for characters like Batman and the Joker? But but the way it's written, and especially the way he writes Joker, is so unbelievably amazing to me. A- and I put this up there, and the, the second I got done reading this, I thought to myself, if this doesn't end up in several Eisner categories at San Diego Comic-Con next year, there's something wrong. Because it's unbelievable. Maybe it misses the window. I don't know. Maybe we should change the rule for this book because it's just that good. Every part about this book was good and compelling. I don't know if you can ask anything more of a comic, especially a superhero comic that doesn't follow the everyday kind of idea and pattern of a superhero book. So this is absolutely a pull for me. If I could get a hundred issues of this, I'd be happy. I know we're only getting seven, but I could get so much more of this and something that's out of continuity. Bring it on. I love it. Another book that I wanted to check out this week was Eugenic number one, which is by Boom Studios, written by James Tin and the Fourth, Eric Donovan on the Illustrations, Colors by D. Cunniff, and Letters by Jim Campbell. Now this book basically starts out there's a little prologue in the beginning saying that there was a virus that kind of took over the the world and Hundreds of millions of people were killed, and then a former pharmaceutical company kind of comes in, they, they get a vaccine, they're going to give it out for free, here's the guy that gave the vaccine, and we are completely grateful to him, and so on and so forth. Now, what you see is the kind of the aftermath of that, and you see the doctor who's Dr. Crane, Dr. Cyrus Crane, as a matter of fact, who he's kind of the man of the hour. He's the one that's responsible for this vaccine, but... I say he's the man of the hour, but there's a point in this book where he kind of doesn't want to take credit. And you think he's being humble for for developing this vaccine. And he goes through all the things that happened when the vaccine was distributed. And now one of the main parts of this book was is that people weren't able to have children when when this virus was happening. The babies would be born, stillborn, and it's a terrible story. So we've seen a rise in births. And that's where this story sort of takes a turn. Big time. And the the book at points, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, becomes very, very uncomfortable. And you start to think of, again, like I was talking about with the last book, you start to think of the societal impacts of what would go on here. And if this happened in our world today, what would the response be? Now, you see, kind of see that, but what you don't see coming is... I'm trying to think of a way to tell you guys this without actually giving it away. But let's just say that there is something that happens in this book... That if you read it really, really closely, you'll pick up on it. But this is kind of like if you remember Cognetic from uh, from Boom Studios, from sort of the same creative team, it just ma- it made you think so, so much and so deeply. And the reason that because I read that book, it made me read this book a little bit closer, and I'm picking up on little keys here and trying to th- and thinking to myself, okay, am I picking up on this? Or is it just, is it just me? Am I the crazy one? And it turns out I wasn't crazy at all. And to watch what happens in these final pages of this book unfold and the level to where it gets taken, I guess for one thing, you kind of think about, okay, where do you go from here? And is this first issue more like a zero issue? And it kind of read that way to me. It seemed like this first issue was a little bit more like a zero issue. And that's not a bad thing either. But, I mean, you've got issue one of three. This was a little bit of an oversized issue, though. So I think you've got room to tell the story that you need to tell here. But And we're going to get a timeline jump in the second issue. So it feels like this was necessary In order to tell whatever story is going to be told in the next couple of issues, and you'll find out why when you read this book, and it has to do with the evolution and what this sort of what the end of this book started. It's almost like starting a new sort of thing is the best way that I can possibly describe it, without spoiling anything. But the but the level to which it's taken, and how things are going to be perceived once we have that timeline jump in the second issue, I think is where this book. Is really going to take off. Anytime there's a book about a virus, it always kind of gives me the creeps a little bit too. And and I know that's what it's supposed to do. And Bravo to Tinan and uh, Donovan and the team for comp- for accomplishing that because you really really did. You kind of creeped me out a little bit. And maybe wonder exactly, you know, is this something that could happen in our world? And and you almost you get to the point where you go, well, why couldn't it? And then you go, okay, stop it. You're freaking me out. And that's exactly the point of this book. And what would happen? if someone were to, to create a vaccine and all of these other things. So if if anything, this book made me question a lot of different things. And I got to tell you, Eric Donovan, who's somebody that I know, I've talked to them, I've hung out with them a, a little bit. I will say I've always been a fan of his art, but as I as I was flipping through the pages of Eugenic, I just see how much Eric Donovan has grown as an artist, and this might be some of his best work if not his best work ever. It just looks so great. Every single page of this book was so fantastic. And you just see where he's come as an artist. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. So one of the reasons that this book also, again, been a good week, because this is a pull for me as well. I'm very, very intrigued by what the societal impacts are going to be going forward. And I have to know, What's gonna happen from here? So I was thinking about giving this a pickup because it wasn't exactly sure, but I'm so intrigued by what's going on. This is a straight up full pull for me, and I'm curious to see if you guys will pick up on some of the cues that I did in this book. And that's the reason I think you need to pick this up as well. Up next, another double dose of geek tainment as our fall TV 2017 coverage continues with our spoiler-filled review of Inhumans on ABC. Next on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
2: Hey, this
3: is Chad Michael Collins from Extinct and Sony Sniper Franchise. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: You've seen some of the reviews now. It's my turn to give my spoiler-filled review of Inhumans, the two-part premiere that happened this past Sunday. I know we've got another episode coming up, but I wanted to talk about the pilot, or at least the two-part pilot anyway. And you've seen how much of a dumpster fire that other critics and some fans have said that this show is. And I got to tell you, right off the bat, before I even get started, I absolutely 100% agree with almost everything that's been said about this show. It just, I was worried about this show from the trailers and and everything, and and just seemed like everything I was worried about, came to pass. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, of course, it centers around the Inhuman Society of Edelan and the fact that you've got the royal family of Black Bolt, who's played by Anson Mount, and Medusa, who's by, played by Serinda Swan, who is trying to decide what to do with their society. They're on the moon now, they're kind of out of the way of where the humans are, but now they they know there are Inhumans on Earth. So they're trying to save them. They're trying to figure out exactly what to do about the Inhumans on Earth. And you have Maximus, who is played by Iwan Rion, who wants to go to Earth. He said, the Inhumans belong on Earth. We should go there. And Black Bolt says, but doesn't say because he can't talk, says, no, I'm your king. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Here was the problem with me throughout this entire show. And I know that this is something that's been said by other people, but this was paramount to me. in both hours of the show was that... I was I kept struggling to figure out why, other than these are characters I know, and I know they're supposed to be the good guys, why should I be sympathizing with this royal family? It just didn't seem like there was any redeeming qualities about them. I mean, if you ha- there were in humans when you go through Terra Genesis, if your power doesn't turn out to be a good one. They basically send you to the mines and make you start mining stuff or, or until you figure out what your real abilities are. And I'm like, that's not good at all. What? So why is it that I think it's okay that they're doing this? And then you've got Maximus who he was cursed to be a human. That's what happened to him. That's what and happened when he went through Terra Genesis. That's what he ended up was he ended up being human. So at first you've got part of the society saying, well, why aren't you here with us? And then the other part's going, well, you know, you, They they champion him because they feel like he's the only person in the royal family that understands him. So once he goes through his whole revolt... I know I'm skipping a bunch of stuff here for good reason because it didn't really matter at the end of the day. Once he goes through his revolt, other than killing some people, which I know is a kind of big deal and you certainly aren't necessarily rooting for him, I found myself not rooting against him either and I can sort of understand why some of the Inhumans in the world would want to take his side. I, I just really, really understood it. And especially, it just see it also seemed like it was just too easy for him to take everything over. I mean, just because you send the, the captain of the Royal Art, you send Gorgon down to Earth to recover one of the Inhumans that had been struck down by other humans, which Again, spoiler, turns out they were ordered by Maximus to do that, so all this thing was set in motion from the beginning. Like You couldn't have seen that a mile away. Just because you send him down there doesn't mean it should have been that easy for him to take over the place. Now, I know that you had Lockjaw, who kind of teleported a bunch of them away, so you didn't have to worry about that, but especially with Medusa. I mean, he takes down Medusa way too easy. I know she got weakened and that's how he was able to shave her hair. I get it. But it was, again, it just seemed too easy. These characters that are supposed to have these badass powers and they just get taken out and and run from a human and a few guards that are under their control in the first place. I just, I didn't understand why it was that easy. And Black Bolt, let's talk about him for a second. Let's, let's veer off the path for a minute. Anson Mount, great actor. Hell on Wheels, I've seen him in a couple of different things. He's been very, very good. The way Black Bolt is portrayed in this show is not his fault. But there is just, it just seems so cheap and weak to me. I mean, everything that was said about him in the show was actually kind of true. It just seemed like he was a a cheap, weak, comedic version of what we know as Black Bolt from the comics, it's like, did you even try to to relate this to the story at all? I mean, he just he didn't strike me as a strong leader. He didn't strike me as a strong king. At times, he actually it actually struck he struck me like a buffoon, and that somebody was that was comical and and probably shouldn't be running a society in the first place. There was not that strength from the character that I was kind of expecting. And when he ends up on Earth, he's again he's kind of a goofball. And even this facial expressions that he makes. He's, he gives you this look like, hey, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. And I, granted, you're in a new society. You don't really know what's going on. You're going to be a fish out of water anyway. But to the nth degree for Black Bolt on this, it just was not good for me. The only character that, that really struck me as interesting and I, and I thought did a good, good job was, was Ken Lewin's character, Karnak, who I thought was very interesting and... And, you know, the whole no-filter thing, I loved that. Uh, any any comedy that worked was definitely centered around him or had to do with him, either directly or indirectly. So that was kind of the only character that worked for me. Everybody else, I'm going, why should I care? Even when they send somebody down to to kill Medusa and the rest of the Inhumans that are down on Earth that have kind of escaped, it's like, why do I even care about this? And And how is this even a battle in the first place. And the fact that it's basically ignored by Black Bolt that his brother's trying to take over. And, and and also that he has a thing for his wife. It's exactly 100% ignored. And that ignorance leads to this whole thing. So it's almost like Maximus is giving you the narrative of how you should feel as a fan in the show. Now there again was nothing wrong with Iwan Rowan's character and how he was portrayed. It just seemed like the writing wasn't there. It's like the, it's like nobody gets these characters in the way they should really be. And I'm going to say it. Cards on the table, no holding back. The whole thing just looked cheap and rushed from the sets, the designs, the CG, the writing, the performances. It's like everybody rolled up one day and said, you know what? Let's make an inhuman show. Let's see how that'll go. And that's exactly what happened. It's like, it's almost like, well, we think this is doomed to fail from the beginning anyway, so what's the point? Or or it's like no guidance was given. I don't know what exactly went wrong here, but it went very, very wrong for me. And I will admit that I've never been a huge fan of the Inhumans anyway. Even in the comics, it just wasn't my thing. I always kind of preferred X-Men, and I think that that's... You know, I don't think it has to be an either-or situation, and I've certainly liked stuff... That, the Inhuman, that has been in Inhumans and comics and stuff like that, I have liked it, but you had such a good thing going on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with Inhumans, then you kind of dumped that to do something different, which, of course, I get, your shows have to evolve, but you did something different, and you didn't give me anything redeeming at all. You didn't give me something that made me go, okay, so that's why they're not using the Inhuman storyline really on S.H.I.E.L.D. anymore. Okay, I get it, makes sense. If anything, you took 10 steps backwards. So I got to tell you, I'm out on Inhumans. I I know that this show is going to be doomed from the beginning. Even ABC seems to think it's going to be doomed on all of their promotional items for the show. It says the complete series. It's almost like it's been canceled before it's even started. And I say at this point, good riddance. We've got more Geek Tame coming up, though. Fox had their big premieres on Monday for Lucifer and The Gifted. We'll get to that next on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
3: Hey, this is Josh Gates from Expedition Unknown, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Two more big premieres on Fox this week. It was the premiere of Season 3 of Lucifer and the premiere episode of The Gifted on Fox's Monday night lineup. So let's start at the 8 o'clock hour with Lucifer, and we get to finally see what happens after he is stranded in the desert with his wings. Although I will say they kind of get to it pretty quickly, and it's a nice callback, by the way, spoiler-filled from here on out for both Lucifer and and The Gifted. It's a nice callback to one of the earlier episodes where they catch a jewel thief, he kind of runs into him again, and it was a nice callback by the writers to have him kind of run off in his underwear. Loved that. And Lucifer kind of eases his way back in pretty quickly after that, and you see the clever Lucifer getting right back into the swing of things, but what was amazing for him was that nobody seemed to be upset that he was gone, and I think that that kind of took Lucifer back a little bit. Not just Chloe, but But Dan and everybody at the precinct, and of course, Ella welcomes him back with open arms, but still, it seemed like it was kind of business as usual as you go on. And then we get introduced to Tom Welling's character on the show, and I gotta tell you, the new lieutenant is such a direct but huge douchebag at the same time, but in a strange and wonderful way, I will say that. The the way that he's just kind of out there and abrupt, and he doesn't like anybody throughout this entire episode. You don't see one shred of really respect at all for anybody in the precinct. As a matter of fact, he's questioning pretty much all of them and their credibility throughout the entire show, except towards the end. But we'll get to that here in a couple minutes. So they're investigating not only what happened to Lucifer and his disappearance, but another disappearance as well as when Lucifer tries to prove to Chloe what happened to him, they find a body, and then it goes from there. I won't go into all the guts and details of the episode, but I will say a couple of things that I loved was we're starting to see that relationship between Ella and... D.B. Woodside's character, Amenadiel, maybe trying to help him find his faith a little bit. Joe Henderson and Ildi Mudrovich actually talked about that with me at San Diego Comic-Con 2017 this past year, said that's something to watch out for. Really looking forward to see where that goes. And we kind of see that, yeah, there is still a little something there between Chloe and Lucifer. Chloe hasn't quite fully let go, even though that that's kind of the way it's been for them, hasn't it? Where... You've got Chloe acting like she's not holding on to wanting something more with Lucifer. And then it seems like she kind of does. And we see her interaction with Tom Welling's character on the show. And she kind of lets it slip a little bit. And we also see that Dan still hates Lucifer. Kind of blames him for the whole Charlotte thing. So the dynamics are very, very similar. And then you have the undercurrent of what's going on with Lucifer. And he has his wings back. And... Spoiler alert again, he cuts them off again, only to have them grow back. So what is the deal with that? So they've already given us a few nice storylines, and we also have what looks to be at least the main villain for now on the show, and that's the Sinner Man. We find out through the investigation for the kidnapping, there was this fake kidnapping agency. And their investigation leads them to this man called the Sinner Man. And we don't really have a whole lot of details other than he's a crime boss. He's the one that paid to have Lucifer abducted and dumped in the desert in the first place. So Lucifer, of course, thinks that this was his dad's fault or it was Amenadiel's fault. And turns out it was the Sinner Man. And we don't know exactly what's going on there. And we also don't know what's going on with Lucifer's power either because he's lost his devil face now. He tries to reveal himself to Chloe again and it doesn't happen. So it's almost like, does Dad not want him to reveal himself to Chloe? Is this something that he's going to have to hold off on or not do at all because there's a greater plan in place? Who knows? But he's lost that, and now he has to do with the Sinner Man. It does seem like that Lucifer does still have powers, but we're not sure exactly what they are. So a solid start to the premiere of Lucifer, as always, building a nice foundation, and I can't wait to see where they go from here. Speaking of which, moving on to the 9 o'clock hour and the premiere of the new X-Men series on Fox called The Gifted, which, of course, follows a couple of different things, actually. we have a different group of mutants, outcasts, if you will, kind of trying to hide from Sentinel Services. You heard from Kobe Bell last week on the show, who plays Jay Sterner, who is one of those Sentinel Services agents, and we'll get to him in just a second. But we also follow the Strucker family. Now, the Strucker family, the dad, actually helps prosecute these mutants the ones that he says are the violent ones but therein kind of lies the problem when we get to see even the the Strucker children kind of disagree on how these mutants are being treated and who's good and who's bad and maybe who's on the side of right and is dad doing the right thing and I kind of loved that back and forth especially in the beginning with the Strucker children and then you see Kate Strucker who's played by Amy Acker kind of try to keep the peace between Lauren Strucker and her brother, Andy. And then we find out that they have powers going forward as well. And the family's unaware of that. So it's almost like a family on the run kind of deal. Now, I know what you're thinking. Because I thought the same thing before I watched this show. And I kind of debunked this last week. But if you missed it, I want to emphasize this again. I'd said on the show previously that this seemed so much like heroes to me. Remember the show that was on NBC. I did not get a hero's vibe at all. As a matter of fact, this show had me on the edge of my seat in the very first episode like Heroes never really did. Even though I did like Heroes when it first came out, it never really kept me on the edge of my seat and just locked in interested like this show does. And I mean, you see right from the beginning some of the mutants that are in this group, of course, Polaris, who's played by Emma Dumont, who you heard Kobe Bell say last week was going to be a real pain in Jace Turner's side in Sentinel Services, and we find out something From her, as a matter of fact, the dad for the Strucker family, who is kind of interrogating Polaris after they capture her, we find out that she's pregnant and he's using that against her, which was a real, real just wrenching moment in that first episode because he's trying to use that to garner information out of her to find out where the rest of the group is. And that was just a low down dirty move. So I guess... On one hand, do you kind of feel sorry for the Strucker family and think they're getting what they deserve at the same time, or at least the dad anyway? Because I guess the rest of the family doesn't really deserve this. There's a real back and forth here, and I think that's one of the beauties of this show is that, and I I asked Kobe Bell about that last week, about how there's that give and take. There's that, you know, who's on the side of right? Who exactly is it that has the right answers here and who is on the right side? Obviously, you kind of don't feel that way about, sentinel services when you see exactly what they're doing to these mutants and some of the toys that they have to work with when you know the thing that latches on to uh, one of the mutants legs and wouldn't let go and then they have to try and shoot them off absolutely unbelievable the toys that they have to work with so it's not like you feel for them but you do feel for the Strucker family but you don't at the same time but I love that that back and forth is happening in this episode and then you have kind of a key piece to this whole mutant group because she was the one that they were rescuing in the first place. And I'm talking about Jamie Chung's character, Blink. They find her. The group of mutants finds her and tries to save her. And that's how Polaris ends up getting captured in the first place. And then there's a little bit of tension there, but there isn't. It seems like, especially with Sean Till's character, Eclipse Marco Diaz, of course he has that relationship with Polaris. It seems like at first he's upset with Blink. And then he's not because this is kind of what they do and they knew what they signed up for. And he wants to go get her, but the leader of the group says, "Eh, not happening. We're not going to go get her. Of course, that's Thunderbird played by Blair Redford. So you get to see a lot of tense moments in this first episode, a lot of group dynamic. And I will say that in a show like this, in such a large cast, the group dynamic is so, so important. And they really nail it, not just with the Strucker family, but with this group of mutants as well and the uprising that they have to deal with. And even the Sentinel Services folks who you see, they've got their nice little group together there, but it's an uneasy group because you've got the good cops and the bad cops, and maybe one is a little quick to be aggressive than the others. It's very, very interesting dynamics throughout not just the quote-unquote good guys, but also the bad guys as well. And we know that there's more coming and maybe we'll see even more mutants as well. But this show just grabbed me in a way that I wasn't ready for. I was really hoping to like this show, but based on the trailers, wasn't sure exactly what to expect. But the emotion that was evoked in me, you see Andy Strucker getting bullied and that's when his power comes out and you you feel for him immediately because I mean, I've been there and I'm sure that you've been there as well you have that moment where you just need to get out. And not only does he get out, he tries—he almost takes a whole friggin' school down with him in the process because he just can't control his power. And then you get to see the relationship between him and his sister where she's looking out for her little brother, and now she's going to try and mentor him and teach him his power. And then thrown into all of this is now their family has to be on the run. So not only does he have to kind of learn who he is, he has to learn who he is on the run, but at least he's now going to be with a group of people that are just like him kind of thing. So, I mean, you stack this up against a show like Inhumans that premiered on ABC on Sunday, night and day different. How much The Gifted did things right is exactly how much Inhumans did things wrong. So I think that The Gifted is everything you could have wanted in an X-Men series and more, and I can't wait to see what's going to be coming up. I know what's going to be coming up for us next. It's a bunch of nerd news here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hey, what's up, guys? This is Kevin Alejandro from Houston, Boston. You're listening to the Down and
0: Nerdy Podcast. New York Comic Con is in full effect, so a bunch of news coming out of that. So you can imagine it's time for nerd news and so much to cover from what's happened so far. Of course, we're recording this before the actual real big start to New York Comic Con. So here's what we know so far and we can talk about. Let's start with the trailers and Future Man from Hulu, which is going to be coming out on November the 14th. We saw a little bit of this at San Diego Comic Con. Of course, it follows Josh Hutcherson, who plays a janitor named Josh Futterman, who finds out that the game he's playing is actually a recruiting tool and the events actually are happening in the future and they are real and he's the only one that's beat the game so he basically has to go back and try he gets to travel in time and try and fix what is wrong in the future now the funny thing is is that he's a janitor at a it looks like a pharmaceutical company doctor's office something like that and they're they're working on a cure for herpes so you can already tell that this is this is kind of a comedy and you see that play out in the trailer I, i i'll admit i laughed several times watching this trailer it, it the concept is so good to me i i love the concept i think that this is a show that's really really going to work plus it, it's a time travel comedy you bring the video game aspect in there it just seems like this is going to be a fun show it sort of breaks up the norm of everything that's coming out right now and josh hutcherson just seems like he's absolutely perfect for this role and it's nice to see him having fun after the really seriousness of the hunger games What's funny, too, is that he's supposed to be this great warrior to those who came back in time to get him. And there's a scene right towards the end of the trailer where he looks like he's fighting somebody in the parking lot in a white lab coat. And they're kind of, you know, slapping each other. And he hits him on the head with a helmet. And that's how he knocks him out. It's just so hilarious. And some of the things that happen, I mean, you've got a little bit of that cross the line humor in there. So I really can't wait for Future Man to come out on Hulu. And then we switch gears to Happy, which is coming to Sci-Fi on December the 6th. Of course, Christopher Maloney plays the ex-cop turned hitman, who's a corrupt cop, Nick Sachs, who dies and comes back to life to see a magical horse who's voiced by Patton Oswalt. This is a cartoon horse, by the way. And it's a little girl's imaginary friend, actually. And now he's kind of tasked to save the little girl. Now, of course, this is based on the graphic novel by Grant Morrison, if you're not familiar with it. It just looks like this is a demented kind of fun slash graphic story that we're going to be getting. And and when Entertainment Weekly talked to Christopher Merloni at New York Comic Con, he said, look, when I found out about this, I either thought that this were, was really going to be outlandish and it was going to be cool or, and I'm paraphrasing here, or it just wasn't going to work at all. And he decided he was all in. And you could tell he kind of plays that off-the-wall, sort of at the end of his rope kind of cop really, really well. And we saw how great he was in Lord Order: Special Victims Unit. And when he lost it, he lost it. And he's just got that look of he's deranged the entire time. During this, during this trailer and, of course, through during the series as well. And for anyone that hasn't read the graphic novel, I certainly don't want to get into the story. I don't want to spoil any of that for you. So I will just leave it at that. It just looks like it's going to be fun. This is an adaptation I think is going to work really well on sci-fi. And, and I know that with Grant Morrison kind of involved in what's going on there, I think that this one's going to work out. Really looking forward to this one. Wish they didn't get pushed a, a week. But, uh, you know, with Thanksgiving right around that time, I kind of understand why you'd want to wait for December. Another trailer that we saw was for a sci-fi thriller starring Keanu Reeves called Replicas. Now, he plays a neuroscientist, William Foster, who is really getting close to transferring human consciousness into a computer, which sounds like an interesting idea until his family dies in a car crash. So what does he do? You know, what would any good neuroscientist do that loves his family? He clones them and creates replicas with the help of... Of another scientist. And you can imagine that doesn't really go over well. And there's problems. And now he's wanted by either the government or the cops or another organization. It's kind of hard to tell from a trailer. But, you know, an artificial robot comes into play. An AI comes into play at some point. And here's the deal, though. Here's the kicker of the whole thing. He can only bring back three of the four members of his family. So that's where it really starts to get deep And interesting. And it's good to see Keanu Reeves really back, diving really back into the sci-fi realm, finally. He just fits so well in the genre. So I'm glad to see that he's doing that again. And I mean, maybe you kind of roll your eyes and say, eh, you know, kind of a concept that's been done before. Is this a movie that we really need? And to bring Keanu Reeves back to the sci-fi realm, I think we need this. I think the concept is interesting enough. I think if the performances are good enough from the cast and the story follows something, you know, kind of gives you that ex Machina feel and the fear of AI. I think that's kind of a big thing right now. So I think that this is something I'm definitely interested in. Sticking in the movie realm, we get this story from Deadline that Bride of Frankenstein, part of that Dark Universe from Universal, has been delayed indefinitely. They've smashed the pause button on it. Now Javier Bardem and Angelina Jolie, who were you know kind of tapped in this movie said that they're going to be waiting. Actually, they're not even signing on now because of everything that's going on, and it's taken off the schedule. They say they're going to do some more script work, and it was supposed to come out on Valentine's Day 2019, which already didn't seem like a good idea. I know the movie's called Bride of Frankenstein, but come on, is this really the day you want to release a monster movie? So maybe this is a good thing, and the fact that they said they don't want to move too quickly. They don't want to rush, but here's my question. If The Mummy was a huge success and the critics loved it and fans loved it, would this have been delayed regardless of what's going on here? I can't be too sure. Even if the script wasn't good, I think they would have put it out no matter what, because they had kind of a soft opening and they're not really sure how well this is going to be received. I think this is them hitting the pause button, not just on this movie, but on the entire thing. At this point, if you really think about it, why Russia? But the only problem you have here is in delaying it and not knowing when this is going to come out now is first of all, you're losing any sort of relevance for your universe because fans aren't going to remember that your universe existed because you're already going to wait two years and now you're going to wait even more. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. Not only that, you've got Angelina Jolie attached. Looks like Maleficent 2 is going to start filming soon and that whole thing's going to be going on. Will she even be available? When they're ready to start filming this thing, or are they going to have to actually find a new actress? And you, it's hard to, hard to replace somebody like Angelina Jolie, so it'll be very interesting to see where that's going to end up going. Here's something that I think fans have been clamoring for for a long, long time, and Marvel is finally going to be doing it, kind of. Newsarama was the first one to break the information on the fact that Marvel is going to be introducing a new character. Now, albeit it's going to be in the Contest of Champions Free mobile game, and the character will be available later on this month named Morningstar. Now, here's the description. I probably won't read the whole thing, but here's what we have so far on what the character is going to be. She started out as a bloodthirsty and tyrannical queen at the turn of the 10th century who was overthrown and imprisoned, and especially built Iron Maiden torture device made to trap the soul of the tortured beyond death, which already sounds really, really interesting, goes on to say: After many years, she has been given the chance for revenge by Mephisto, Lord of the Lies, and her Iron Maiden prison has been transformed into a golem-like armor as she wears the land, as she wanders the land in search of her infamous demon sword, La Fuer de Mal. Hopefully, I didn't butcher that name like I do with the rest of them, and she pre- she's currently in possession of a guillotine and another marvel character and that is what's going on in contest of champions now what have i said a million times about everything that's going on with marvel why not introduce a new character instead of trying to change the classic characters and kind of the problem with you know why we stopped talking about marvel comics in the first place on this show and i've got to tell you 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 look at the art for this character And it's very, very interesting. You see this kind of like a, like, almost like the Ghost Rider chain with a giant death ball at the end of it, it seems like, or almost a death ball flying saucer looking thing. And the character has a very ancient Egyptian kind of look. And even the color scheme is very, very similar to that in the armor. It's very, very interesting that they'd be going this route. And why not test out a new character On a mobile game where you've already got a lot of your classic characters, you don't really lose anything by trying out a new character in a video game. So if this character becomes popular, and it looks like people are all in on this character, I I could see this character moving in to the comics at some point, maybe even other types of media, animated series and such, depending on how, or movies, depending on how things go. And... Fans are able to try out the character before the character comes out later this month at New York Comic Con. I just think that this is very smart and hopefully a sign of things to come for Marvel. I really hope that this is Marvel saying, look, we hear you. Now we are actually going to start creating new characters and see what happens. I mean, with all the turmoil that's happened in Marvel Comics... You've got to try something at this point, right? And I know that's what they're going to be doing with with Marvel Legacy that's going to be coming up. And I know what you're thinking. You know, you guys said you weren't going to be talking about Marvel Comics. Well, this is a little bit of a different animal because you're, you're creating a character in a video game that if it becomes popular, this character becomes popular, not only might they start to create more new characters realizing, hey, maybe this is what we should have been doing all along, but maybe we see this character come into the comics and we finally start to see... Marvel injects some new life into its line without trying to change what's already there. So I think that maybe, just maybe, this is a lesson that could be learned here by Marvel. So we'll see how it goes. Now let's do a little bit of roundup on the comic news and a bunch of stuff coming out. As a matter of fact, one thing that caught my eye was that IDW and Dynamite are going to be teaming, teaming up for a G.I. Joe and $6 million man crossover. Which is something that I look at that... And this is, to me, is an example of, I can't believe this hasn't already been done. It just seems like this completely makes sense. And, of course, this gives you the possibility of Bionic Woman coming in there as well. You cannot rule that out at any point. It's going to be coming out in January of 2018. Ryan Ferrier and S.L. Gallant, of course, the longtime artist on G.I. Joe, going to be involved in this project. But Dynamite didn't stop there. They actually also announced a Battlestar Galactica 78 versus 03 crossover that's going to be happening. And they managed to get the great Peter David to write that book as well. Now, basically what's going to be happening is you have two of the colliding universes universes of the Cylons. That's going to be your threat. And the Cali, who kind of created them is what's going to bring these two worlds together. So if you're a huge Battlestar fan or if you've always argued with your friends over which is better, the original or the reboot that came out on Sci-Fi. This is your chance to kind of see that play out in comics. And I think this is a really smart move. It's, you know, bringing Battlestar back into the forefront. Just had that Battlestar uh, marathon not too long ago on one of the networks. It might have actually been sci-fi. I can't really remember. But Battlestar is always one of those shows that's never gone away. It's a favorite of fellow nerds. And I'm excited to see what they do with this, and it'll be interesting to see how they they have the two interact, and maybe that's what maybe they create friction there, and I'm sure that they will, and maybe there's a little bit of kind of inside you know jabs at each series that maybe fans have thought of over the years. I just think that this is a really cool idea, and I'm glad that Dynamite's doing it. But you think that would be it? Oh no, Dynamite has also announced that they're going to be bringing in a Deja Thoris prequel series before she was even the Princess of Mars. That will also be coming out in January of 2018. One of the reasons that I'm excited right off the bat is that Amy Chu is going to be writing this. Amy Chu just knows how to write female leads in limited series. I always go back to her Poison Ivy limited series that she did for DC Comics not too long ago that was absolutely fantastic. So I am all about this. It's also going to have one of those 25 Cent Zero issues, which is what dynamite's been doing lately with a lot of their books has been giving these 25 cent zero issues to kind of get fans to give a chance to try it out i mean for a quarter you'll try out almost any book for a quarter right unless you're completely 100 percent not interested in it at all i think this is a brilliant move by dynamite to continue to do this as a matter of fact it was very successful for sheena when they did the zero zero issue there because i think it sold what over one hundred and fifty thousand copies or something like that. You could check my math on that if you like. But this kind of is is, is set in an uh, it sets off in an expedition to the garden of Mars, where she's trying to save her dying planet, and she comes into contact with someone on the way there that sort of changes things. So I I just think that Dynamite, so far at least in the early going, some major major announcements from New York Comic Con, and I've I kind of picked on them a little bit at San Diego Comic Con where I said, you know, they didn't really step up. We didn't get a whole lot from Dynamite. I could barely even find where they existed at San Diego Comic-Con. Maybe this is why. Maybe they knew that they had this ready to go. I was like, you know what? Let's not rush it. Let's wait for New York and let's bring this out then. So bravo to Dynamite for stepping up and saying, hey, you can make all the announcements that you want, but we are absolutely here. And speaking of here, Dark Horse Announces that Joss Whedon is going to be returning to Buffy. That's right. He's going to do a Giles series, or at least a series that centers around Giles, with Erica Alexander co-writing and John Lamb of Gotham Academy He's going to be doing the art. First of all, that's a brilliant choice for for a Buffy story. Getting John Lamb because the whole Gotham Academy vibe, I think, is kind of going to be there because Rupert Giles is going to be a man li- a man living in a teenager's body, and teachers teachers are disappearing. From the high school and we get something mystical involved. But it's not really a demon they said. It's going to be something a little bit beyond that. So I think kind of getting away from the vampire demon thing. Going to be a very interesting call to make in this Buffy the Vampire story. Although I mean a good call at the same time. And it would be nice to see Joss Whedon back at the helm again. Image Comics announced a bunch of new series. I'm going to talk about a couple of them that caught my eye. And the first one was Infidel which is going to be coming out in March of 2018. Now, this name, I mean, you, you want to talk about names that, that that I'm probably not going to get. I'm going to give it a shot. Pornsak Pinchote, who is a former Vertigo editor, is going to be writing this book, which is about supernatural entities that feed off of xenophobia. And this is going to be a, Muslim, a young Muslim woman and her family that have moved into a different neighborhood in their city. So... I mean, this seems like a really interesting story, and I mean, you know, the political undertones there, you can talk about those, which you will, and maybe you're sick of politics and comics and you're not going to read this, but I mean, if there's a unique concept out there to do a story like that, I think that this is it, and and saw a little bit of the art on the cover, and the art looks like it's going to be really, really fantastic, so I'm looking forward to Infidel and seeing what they're going to be doing. The other book that really stood out to me in these announcements from Image was one that's going to be done by Jerry Dugan, who's called Analog, which will be out in April of 2018. David O'Sullivan's going to be doing the art on that, and Jordy Belair is going to be doing the colors. It's kind of an espionage tale where secrets can no longer be transmitted online due to an attack that makes Internet history public. I don't care how squeaky clean you are and what you look at on the Internet that you don't think is controversial— Would you want your search history to be public and your browsing history to be public? Probably not. So the way that they're going to go with this, I'll be very interested to see what the main concept is here. But this is one of those books where if it was done by almost anybody else, I'd wonder if this was going to be a good story. But because it's going to be done by image and you don't see Dugan do a lot of stuff outside of Marvel, the fact that he wants to bring this book to image to do and do something a little bit different for him. I mean, we're used to seeing him on Deadpool and titles like that. And maybe this is one of those times where he wants to stretch his wings a little bit. I mean, Greg Capullo did that. You know, you take a break from a Batman book to go do Reborn with Mark Millar. Why not do this if you're Jerry Dugan? Why not do something a little bit different to kind of get out of the... I mean, if writing Deadpool is probably never boring. So I'm not saying that, that he's bored with it. All I'm saying is, is that... You give yourself that creative freedom and maybe it reopens your eyes to things that you can do when you're telling stories for classic characters as well. And you get that creative freedom to do something else every now and then. And that's almost like a breath of fresh air. And I really think that that's why Dugan's going to put a lot of passion into this project. And one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to it. One final story and I want to save this one for last because... It's it's a really, really big deal, and that's the fact that Vertigo, it was announced at the Meet the Publishers panel that Vertigo is going to be relaunching for its 25th anniversary. Of course, Jim Lee, Jim Lee was talking about this, didn't reveal hardly anything other than the fact that it's going to be coming back in August of 2018. Now, Mark Doyle, who has just kind of been made managing editor at Vertigo, is going to be overseeing this relaunch. and They've promised some well-known creators. They're going to curate new stuff, also going to bring some classic stuff in as well. I'll be honest, I thought Vertigo was actually doing pretty good with, with a couple of titles in anyway. it. The Wildstorm title's been very, very good. You've also got Savage Things by Justin Jordan, which I've been loving. But beyond that, I mean, do I do I really have a lot of Vertigo t- titles in my poll right now that I'm consistently reading? I'll be honest, no. And I think that that's kind of the bummer. I think that you've seen publishers like Image and even Dark Horse and look what IDW is getting ready to do with Black Crown. Vertigo is getting ready to be lapped here by not just one but multiple publishers. And I think that they kind of see that so they go, all right, we need to relax here and see what's really, really going on and let's just take our time and make a big push for August of 2018. So I'm thinking San Diego Comic-Con next year We will absolutely positively get a huge amount of information on Vertigo. And that's going to be the panel to get to next year. It's going to be that Vertigo panel because I'm sure titles will be announced before then, but we'll have a lot more details coming up there. And I understand why they want to keep it close to the vest right now because they probably don't even know for sure all the things they want to do and why let a couple things pop when you can let everything pop all at once. And that's kind of what. They tried to do it with Vertigo a couple of years ago at San Diego Comic-Con, and it just really didn't work out for a lot of the titles. So hopefully this one breathes new life into it. That's gonna do it for Nerd News from New York Comic-Con 2017. Of course, keep following us on social media for the latest news up to date. We'll have more we'll talk about more of that coming up on Nerd News next week. But this week we're talking to the cast of the Flash and Arrow, getting you ready for those big premieres, and that's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Seguera, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time for the big CWTV premieres this upcoming week, and I was lucky enough to sit down with the cast of The Flash and Arrow at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. Started off with The Flash and Jesse L. Martin. We know that Wally's going to be taking up a bigger role as a hero, so who's going to be his mentor? Let's ask Jesse about that. So as a hero... Wally sort of had Barry as his mentor, and now that yeah. that kind of element has just moved and he's been thrust into this position so quickly. Yeah. Uh, how, is Joe going to take more of a role in trying to mentor Wally in that respect? Because he was by Barry's side for so long?
3: Well, no, I think more than anything, Joe lets Wally be Wally and be Kid Flash, like not get in the way. Like, you know, in the same way that when Barry got used to using his powers, um... Joe step back. I mean Joe could help Barry with Barry things, but when it came to him being the Flash, I'd let him be a superhero because I don't know anything about that. So I you know <laughs>
0: Next, I was able to talk to executive producer Todd Helbing about, you know, the lack of Caitlin being in the room and Barry as well, who's going to be the leader of Team Flash. You're talking about getting Cisco out into the field more and of course Wally as well and then of course you have Caitlin who's off, so that kind of has a big dynamic to Team Flash in the room, so who really is going to take up that role in the room?
4: To sort of things. That yeah
0: that's Iris she she's uh, you know at the end of last season Barry told her to keep running and 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 be strong and so she has done that she stepped up she is now the team leader and and she is the one sort of orchestrating uh, 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 everybody um, whenever these missions are on. next it was time to talk to Keeman Lonsdale about Wally and taking up more of the Big man on campus role on Team Flash. Is this something he really needed? Do you think that this is something that Wally kind of needed in a way? With Barry being gone now, he has to do it himself, and especially, well, not necessarily himself, but take up more of a role in the team mm. and build his confidence back up, especially after what happened last season. with uh, Yeah,
4: avatar. yeah. I think I think
1: um, it's that saying everything happens for a reason. But I I believe, and even in the, the world of our show, like if a situation has come about, good or bad like it was supposed to happen and people will grow from that and so Wally's definitely learning so much about himself and he's able to become more confident without um, without being so cocky I think he was so cocky getting his powers and just in general but that was because of insecurity and now I think it's it's the confidence comes from a place of just like knowing his knowing himself more
0: yeah Next up, the lovely and wonderful Candace Patton. I talked to her about, I mean, everything that's happened with Iris. Is she finally going to catch a break at some point? To touch on that and how she's feeling like all the things that have been ripped away from Iris since the beginning of the show course, is, um, you know, nonsense. First season yes. and now Barry in this season. I mean, yeah. is she ever going to catch a break at some point? We know the show's going to be lighter this season. It
2: is going to be lighter, which I'm very happy about. I think I did enough crying on season three for the rest of this series, <laughs> um, and so I'm really happy to not have to do a lot more of those. Season four—we're going to keep it really light. There's a lot of funny, funny stuff that we've shot so far that I'm really excited about. Episode two, we're shooting now probably just reading it probably my favorite since the pilot um i was really excited about it um, but yeah a lot a lot lighter for for iris this season for sure
0: more with candace Patton. let's find out what she thinks Barry's going to think of Iris being the new leader of Team Flash. We know that Barry's coming back at some point. How is Barry going to react to Iris' new role as leader of the team?
2: I don't know. Hopefully he's okay with it. Um, I think he would be, you know. She's kind of stepped up and and, um, contributing, and Barry would only want her to be happy. So I think
5: he would love it. Yeah.
0: We're talking to the cast of The Flash, getting you ready for the big premiere this week, and Daniel Pennebaker was next, and I asked her about the effect that Killer Frost has had on her relationship with Cisco. I feel like another really important relationship for Caitlyn, of course, was with Cisco, and that's what's yes. kind of made the Killer Frost thing kind of fall a little bit on a seesaw. So, how much is her relationship with Cisco going to be affected? You think? I,
6: I think, you know, we've already seen how much their relationship has been affected. But I have to say, Caitlyn and Cisco's relationship is one of my favorites. I love that it's so platonic and that there is so much love for each other, um, and that they really do have each other's backs.
0: One of my favorite guys to talk to in the room was Tom Cavanaugh about Wells, and I say Wells because he's had a lot of different iterations. Was there one that was a favorite for him?
5: Was there an iteration that you enjoyed more than others? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, And not to be politically correct, uh, I've really enjoyed enjoyed all, all the different versions. What I hear from the fans is there was an episode last year where we did like a bunch of I did a bunch of different ones really quickly and they just yeah. assumed that those guys are going to and I was like no you're not going to do, <laughs> not gonna do Hell's Wells because you can't string a sentence together Tom Felton already had the great British accent and you can't have a mime I don't care. Right. <laughs> I get paid by the word and I'm pretty voluble and so a mime is not going to be a mime is not going to work for anybody I think that would get the show canceled but so like you know it's a long season so there's like I say there's a, there's tons of earths out there many things to pick from and you try and pick one that's going to serve the show well. Like Harry was great on season two because Grant is so winning and Carlos is so winning and Danielle is so winning. and It's like, you know, if we had something who's a bit of a jackass, that would help us, you know? And then in season three, it was like, maybe if we had a little more humor because there's some dark things this year, maybe that would help us, you know? So we try and pick things where we might have like uh, a deficiency and try and improve that.
0: If you haven't seen this video yet that we shot, something very hilarious happened right before Tom Cavanaugh left and Grant Gustin sat down literally in the same chair
5: with Tom Cavanaugh. Give it a listen. So a and I did a song. It's called Two Guys on a Chair. Do you guys like to hear it? It's really quick. It's called Two Guys on a Chair. You ready? You ready? And two guys on a chair. A chair. One guy gets up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: if you haven't seen that video yet, go to our YouTube channel, which is on our website, Nerdypodcast.com. You will love it. Now it's talk, time to talk to the man himself, Barry Allen, in the Flash, Grant Gustin, and what he thinks of the new villain that's going to be coming for this season. Speaking of moving on, you're kind of moving on from having a Speedster as the main yeah. villain as well. What's that going to be like coming up
5: this season?
4: I don't know too. I don't know too much about DeVoe and the Thinker, which is our our big bad. Um, but it's not a Speedster, so first of all, the tag at the beginning of the show, "My name is Barry Allen. I'm the fastest man alive," will actually be true.
2: Um, <laughs> that's an nice yeah.
4: Um, yeah, it'll be different. You know, we're not dealing with the speed, so we're gonna we're gonna have to come up with different ways to save the day. So it'll be a whole different dynamic
0: for sure. One more question for Grant. Let's find out how he feels about Iris being in his ear after he does come out of the Speed Force. You were talking about Barry making an adjustment once he does come back out from the speed boards. So, is having Iris in his ear going to be something that kind of helps reacclimate him to his normal life? Yeah,
4: I think Iris is always kind of the thing that kick-starts Barry when he needs it. So. Uh, again, having Barry or Iris in Barry's ears is always a good thing for Barry. I think sometimes like any relationship, he's like, stop, but it, its stop, you know, like, but ultimately he needs it. So it'll be good for him.
0: It's time to talk about Arrow. And first up was Katie Cassidy. And I wanted to talk to her about the transition from going from playing Laurel to now playing Black Siren on the show full time. You talk about those emotions. What is it like from being such a family setting with Laurel, and then going to Black Siren, and having to go against this team and these people that you've basically loved for so many seasons?
2: Um, that's a good question. It's it's interesting because some of the scenes when I have scenes with my father now as Black excuse me Black Siren, uh, I get as an actor I get really confused because I'm mm-hmm. so used to looking at Paul. As my father, and you know, being very close to him, and now my character is obviously a lot darker. And, mm-hmm. and when we have those scenes, I, as I just get a little, it's, it's a little confusing for Paul and I. Right. We get through it, but we're like, what? We're used to thinking this, and now we're thinking something totally different. It's it's an interesting. Um, dynamic and going against the team i always just feel i, I mean i am having a blast mm-hmm. it's so fun to play in I blast. Bet. Yeah. so i just you know try to make the most of every, everything that they give me in terms of material and writing and, right. and i'm just happy to be back
0: <laughs> next i asked katie how she thinks black siren's gonna feel about kind of going it alone now Well, it's more lone wolf status for her now, right? Because she was with Prometheus, and of course we know what happened to him in the finale, so everything going on in Nanda Parbat, so how do you think she's going to handle that, or or could we see her possibly connect with someone else?
2: I think we can definitely see her connect with someone else, Um, and I think we might, you know, as we reveal more and more of her and get to know her story, it might be somewhat... Red- redeeming I say. okay um but we haven't gotten too much into it i just know and looking forward like they will start to unravel i think more about who black siren is and
5: yeah.
2: why and how and her backstory and, and i'm excited about that
0: i think it'll be awesome next up it was the current black canary juliana Harkovay, and you know i had to ask her about that black canary suit Tell us about the suit. We finally got that's one reveal we actually got from yeah. season 6 and it looks amazing. Thanks. Talk about it a little bit.
6: The suit is amazing. Like uh, Maya our costume director is just she's a, she's a genius. Like she she can create things that are masterful and this suit is it's just it makes you feel like a superhero. It really transforms the way you stand, the way you walk. It's uh, it's, an, it's an awesome suit. Yeah.
0: I loved putting it on. Next up, I asked her how she's going to be balancing her police and vigilante life on the show. Are we going to start to see more of the balance with the uh, Star City PD and how she's going to balance that life with her life as Black Canary? Is that going to progress even more? Because she seems to be kind of rising in the ranks already of the Star City PD.
6: Absolutely. I think I, I think that the city is becoming more and more important to her because, you know, it's her home now. Um, this team is her family. She doesn't really have that, you know, on her own and, and a family of her own. So... Um, the police force, Star City, you know, justice, like all of those things, it, it means a lot to her. And I think that, you know, she will be, um, she will be rising up in the, in the ranks for sure.
0: Yeah. Next up, I mean, it looks creepy to us. How creepy is it really to be filming on Li and You? How creepy was it filming on Li and You? It, Do it, you get a really creepy vibe there?
6: Totally. And like this, the monastery um, that was actually a set, on, not in the forest where we shoot like our outside stuff, but... Uh, it was it was on a regular set in vancouver was so amazing like it actually i said it looked a bit like game of thrones almost like it was just such an epic like overgrown with like leaves it looked so real and it was so creepy and then they had these big fires going it was like very easy to you know get into it and in there yeah
0: next up it's david ramsey and let's just say diggle didn't waste any time
3: all right the explosion
6: let's talk
3: about the explosion Let's talk about it.
0: We can talk about the explosion. You
3: want to talk about something else besides that?
0: No, absolutely not. Right.
3: Um, uh, <laughs> the explosion profoundly affects people on the show, particularly Diggle. I, 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 I uh, shadowed James Bamford, our esteemed fight choreographer-turned-director-turned-now-producer-director on our show. It's so a 601. Just to look at directing and all this stuff. I'm not directing an episode. Um and we went back to the island and we shot what happened on the island in terms of the explosion. Uh, Diggle was profoundly affected by it. And uh, we'll see the the, uh, the repercussions of what happened to him on the island throughout the season. So Diggle particularly. Yeah. There are other people that are affected
0: but Diggle specifically. Next up, I asked David about returning back to the island after what happened in the finale of season five. How weird is that for you guys, wrapping on season five, everything that happened, and then having to go back for the start of season six to film there once again, knowing what happened in the finale?
3: Well, yeah, I think, I think there was an intensity getting back to it because when we read 601, we were like, oh, wow. And so getting back and shooting was, it was fun to get back and shoot that stuff. Um, and tell that side of the story because you just, you just see the, exp- the explosion in the, in the cliffhanger and to get back to the island and actually see what happened, that was exciting. You know, it was a good piece of storytelling, just kind of like what happened, uh, what happened to the team, how they or how they didn't get out. Yeah, that was fun.
0: You know I was excited to talk to this guy. It's Stephen Amell, Oliver Queen himself, and I kind of noticed something very familiar about the finale of season five. I wanted to ask him about that, and playing a dad. There's something very familiar about what happened in the finale of season five, and it will be interested to see if it carries over to season six, is that... Familiar in what way? Here's Oliver on a boat with his son That's off right. the shores of and Yu. so are there going to be any sort of mental flashbacks just for Oliver personally, what happened with his father, and Hopefully, how he can do it differently. I mean,
1: uh, Oliver being a dad is my favorite part of season six thus far. Um, and it's certainly what I've had to play the most. Um, you know, I've, I've said this multiple times, but my first day back on season six was four scenes with Jack, who plays William, and I was fucking nervous. I didn't know I'd never done a scene with this kid. You know what I mean? A kid, he's a young man, he's you know. Right. We had done one scene where I'm holding him close and we had done one scene where he's playing with action figures. We had four scenes. And I was like, I didn't know I was gonna go, you know? And he was not only equal to the task but excelled. I left that day feeling so bullish about season six and everything
0: that we have coming up. When Rick Gonzalez sat down next, you know I had to ask him about those emotional moments in season five between Renee and his daughter. So before we get to talking about season six, yeah. I want to go back to season five for a little bit because you had some of the most emotional stuff in season five, man. That, that stuff with you and your daughter, and the whole story. Yeah. When you guys are, are trying to come together, it, li- literally in tears, man. I was literally uh, in tears. So what was that like, That just that whole story to have that play out? Because it was amazing. Oh, was so good. Um, You know, I mean, I
1: I think it was overwhelming because in the beginning it was like, oh, you're playing Wild Dog. What? Who is he? And I figured it out and I was excited. I'm like, oh, he has guns and he wears a mask. And he's like, oh, I just wanted to just, just wanted to sink my teeth in it. Um, And then as they started to show his energy and he became a dad and he he was a dad and and he had his daughter and, and then and then we saw that he had a he had a wife and and she died and it was, it was tragic and and then it just it was just like oh wow it was like eating a full course meal it was just as an actor you just love that stuff you know it was just so much fun and uh, i just enjoyed it you know i, I really did I, I, I appreciated it i'm a fan of comics i love comic books i used i used to collect them all the time I, you know so i understand like the importance of like making this character come to life and like making him real and making him really a dad and, and and that's what he cared about and that's what broke him and that you know and I understand that there's even more to Renee prior to uh, uh, the marriage you know his whole military career and what happened there you know there's a whole story there every time I read Renee I'm saddened for him because I see how broken he is so right that's so you know to me that's just fun to just kind of dive into and play and. Yeah, man, it's just having a good time. So. But it it, it 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 was so good. I mean, Spectre of the Gun, that episode just it was so it, it meant a lot to me. You know, and I'm a dad now too. My daughter's gonna be four next week, so um, it just resonated on many levels, you know, just easily, yeah,
0: for sure. Next up it was executive producer Mark Guggenheim, and I was asking him if Oliver as a dad was that something that they've been preparing for from the beginning I was talking to Steven about Oliver becoming a dad in this season but we've seen him as a mentor so many times so do you feel like this is something you guys have been preparing for since almost season one
4: yeah, I mean, you know, a big a big thing that we talked about in the writers' room uh, during season five was how season five had to be the culmination of not just five seasons of the show, but ten years of Oliver's life—the five years he spent in hell, uh, as he always says at the beginning of every mm-hmm. episode—and the five years he's now spent on the show. And one of the cool things about season six is that we really sort of flipped the dynamics. There's, there's, you know, over the first five seasons, we sort of saw often that Oliver would be dealing with something, and it would either be Felicity or Diggle, sometimes Lance or Thea, but usually Felicity or Diggle, who would give some piece of advice right. and help work him through with his crisis of the week. Uh, this year, we're flipping the dynamic on its head, and it's Oliver being the one to dole out the advice, hmm. and to sort of be the wise and sage uh... in those scenes and that's kind of cool but it's it's the result of oliver's hard-won experience over the last ten years of his life
0: next up it was the other producer merritt wendy miracle and she said she didn't know how we did this all day at san diego comic-con 2017 and i kinda flipped the tables on her and how, what it was like to be doing this show for six seasons now
2: i know it's amazing
0: I mean, what do you mean you don't know how we do it we don't know how you do it i mean you've been doing this they're going on six seasons now what's that been I like
2: I it's a crazy ride. I, every other show I've ever been on was canceled after like two years. So you're like, what? Oh, my gosh, this is going. Um, and then you're like, oh, shit, this is going. How are we going to do this? <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a challenge.
0: Next up, I had to ask Wendy how the season is going to evolve with a brand new villain, especially following up Prometheus. Well, let's talk about the you've had a lot of great villains on the show. I guess you'd call the main villain. So coming out of what's going to be happening, in this premiere, how do you think that the main villain for season six, of course you can't really reveal who it is, how do you think that's going to evolve as the season progresses?
2: I think we've learned a lot from season five and one of the things that we will be doing and looking to do with the villain this year is, you know, in season five we had Prometheus and he, we had two things kind of going for us there, which was Josh Cigar's performance. He
1: was awesome. Yeah,
2: he was amazing. Really amazing performance. But also that he was, he approached Oliver in a different way. He was a psychological villain. He was really messed with Oliver's head and looking for a new way to explore that, I think that will be the key to cracking season six.
0: I don't know about you, but I am so ready for The Flash and Arrow and the entire DC TV universe with Supergirl starting on Monday at 8 o'clock, and then you've got The Flash on Tuesday at 8, Legends of Tomorrow Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Don't forget Arrow, though, on a new night, Thursday at 8 o'clock, all those times Eastern. So make sure you know you adjust for your time zones and stuff like that. But I'm so excited for all of these shows for different reasons. If you missed our Legends of Tomorrow interviews, go back a few weeks on either our iTunes page or SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever you're listening, go back through that. Also, you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com to get that as well. Find us on social media at facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. We'll have more for you next week, but for this week, make sure you let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.